The Productive Woman, Episode 386. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Thank you so much for joining me. This week, I'm going to share a few ideas from some books that I am currently reading or have just finished reading that have inspired and motivated me to think differently about life and productivity and begin to maybe make a few little changes in my life. You'll find links and additional information in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 386. This episode is brought to you by Calm. How have you been caring for yourself lately? Whether it's taking longer baths, going on evening strolls, or indulging in midday naps, you can pair your self-care ritual with Calm and take your wellness to the next level. I am really happy to be partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app and one that I use almost every day. an app that will help give you the tools to improve the way you feel. You can reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations. You can improve focus with curated music tracks and rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. There are even new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. And if you go to calm.com slash TPW, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. That's the one that I use, and they add new content every week to help you in all these various areas. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds, and Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. As I've mentioned more than once, Calm is an app that I have used for quite some time. And in particular, I like their sleep stories. They really do help me kind of calm my mind down so that I can get to sleep at night or get back to sleep if I wake up in the night. It's really a useful tool to me. It's interesting that we're going to be talking a little bit later about routines and rituals and why they're valuable. And Calm kind of fits into this. And I hadn't really realized that um, they were the sponsor for this episode until after I'd put the episode outline together. In any event, for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash TPW. That's calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash TPW for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. Once again, that's calm.com slash TPW. Definitely check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, so let's get into this week's topic. All my life, I have been a bookworm and a productivity nerd, which means I've read a lot of books and articles about productivity-related topics. And because of that, there are a lot of different thinkers across the spectrum that through their written materials have contributed to the formation of my own, I guess, personal philosophy of productivity as being more than simply 
maintaining a comprehensive to-do list and then checking off as many things as possible each day from that list. It, it really, all the, the things that I've read and learned over the years have in large part been contributed to my thinking by the various materials I've read. So this week, I wanted to share with you some thought-provoking quotes and ideas that I've been pondering lately from three books that I have read recently. These are three books that I highly recommend. I'm not making this episode officially a part of our productive reading recurring series, but it kind of fits in there. I may talk in more depth about one or more of these books in the future, but for now, I just I'm just going to share some of the thoughts uh, that I've been thinking about after reading and/or listening to these books. And uh, I do recommend these books. I'll include links in the show notes in case you want to check them out yourself. So the first book is Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. I think I mentioned this a a couple weeks ago as uh, this is the book that I listened to uh, in audiobook form on a recent cross-country road trip. And I found it so meaningful that I bought a hard copy version of it so I could read it again and take notes and kind of mark some passages. And so I'm not going to, you know, summarize the whole book here, but there were a couple of key points in this book that I thought uh, were worth sharing because they've really, I've just been thinking about it a lot since listening to and, and reading this book. And the, the first one is this concept of stillness, what it is and why it matters. As I said, the book is called Stillness is the Key. So what is he talking about there? Well, he describes stillness as something we all want, and he kind of describes it in these terms, and I'm quoting here, to be steady while the world spins around you, to act without frenzy, to hear only what needs to be heard, to possess quietude, exterior and interior, on command. And when I first heard that in listening to the audiobook, you know, I thought, yeah, that is what I want. I'm not very good at that. Um, chaos around me affects me internally, and I would, I would like this concept of stillness. I would like to be able to experience that. And he acknowledges in the book the difficulty of it, noting that it's always been difficult. He says in one part of the book, While the magnitude and urgency of our struggle is modern, it is rooted in a timeless problem. Indeed, history shows that the ability to cultivate quiet and quell the turmoil inside us, to slow the mind down, to understand our emotions, and to conquer our bodies has always been extremely difficult. And he notes that all the various ancient philosophical schools of thought around the world, you know, separated by centuries and by many, many miles, they've all struggled with this dilemma and reached similar conclusions regarding the need for what he calls the stillness required to become master of one's own life, to survive and thrive in any and every environment, no matter how loud or busy. And he says this is something, the stillness is something that's crucial for all of us. And he says, This idea of stillness is not some soft New Age nonsense or the domain of monks and sages, but in fact desperately necessary to all of us. It is an attainable path to enlightenment and excellence, 
greatness and happiness, performance as well as presence for every kind of person. He goes on to say, stillness is what aims the archer's arrow. It inspires new ideas. It sharpens perspective and illuminates connections. It slows the ball down so that we might hit it. It generates a vision, helps us resist the passions of the mob, makes space for gratitude and wonder. Stillness, he says, allows us to persevere, to succeed. It is the key that unlocks the insights of genius and allows us regular folks to understand them. I just love that kind of summary of what stillness can do to us and for us. And remember, when we're talking about stillness, it doesn't necessarily mean just sitting in a corner somewhere not moving. It is that that concept that I quoted from him earlier of being steady while the world spins around you, to be able to be quiet inside, regardless of what's going on outside. And in the book, he gives lots of, of examples of where this has been beneficial to individuals and to nations as a whole, when leaders were able to accomplish this. So anyway, I just think, uh, you know, that, that that's something that has I've really been thinking about, because it's not something that comes easily to me. And he, he talks about the reason why so many of us struggle to find this kind of stillness and the peace and the insights that come from it. He says, we do not live in this moment. We, in fact, try desperately to get out of it by thinking, doing, talking, worrying, remembering, hoping, whatever. We pay thousands of dollars to have a device in our pocket to ensure that we are never bored. We sign up for endless activities and obligations, chase money and accomplishments, all with the naive belief that at the end of it will be happiness. He goes on to say, Tolstoy, you know, the the author, observed that love can't exist off in the future. Love is only real if it's happening right now. If you think about it, he says, that's true for basically everything we think, feel, or do. Remember, there's no greatness in the future or clarity or insight or happiness or peace. There is only this moment. And he kind of explains there, he says, not that we mean literally 60 seconds. The real present moment is what we choose to exist in instead of lingering on the past or fretting about the future. It's however long we can push away the impressions of what's happened before and what we worry or hope might occur at some other time. Right now can be a few minutes or a morning or a year if you can stay in it that long. So we struggle with that because we don't stay in the moment. We we have a hard time being still because we have a hard time kind of staying and being where we are at any given moment. And in the book, he also talks about why this being present in the moment is so important. He says, who is so talented that they can afford to bring only a part of themselves to bear on a problem or an opportunity? Whose relationships are so strong that they can get away with not showing up? Who is so certain that that they'll get another moment that they can confidently skip over this one? The less energy we waste regretting the past or worrying about the future, the more energy we will have for what's in front of us. Uh, That really spoke to me. Those questions, who is so talented 
that they can afford to bring only part of themselves to bear on a problem or an opportunity. If we are not still, if we are not in this moment, we're not bringing our whole selves to whatever it is in front of us. Um, Whose relationships, he asks, are so strong that they can get away with not showing up? That that really kind of um, convicted me, for last, lack of a better term. I, I wonder, you know, how often do I not show up and, and be there for the people who are so important to me? And, you know, he asks also, who is so certain that they'll get another moment that they can confidently skip over this one? Uh, that's a great question for all of us to ponder. We we know intellectually that tomorrow is not guaranteed to us. Five minutes from now is not guaranteed to us. So why would we not bring our whole selves to experiencing this moment we're in? Because there, it, as cliche as it sounds, it could be our last. So a lot of great food for thought there that I've really been kind of pondering as I go about my business and thinking about how do I bring that into uh, my own life and and put it into action. The other thing in this book that I thought um, was really well expressed and worth thinking about was uh, a section where he talked about the importance of routine in our lives. He says, It was Eisenhower who defined freedom as the opportunity for self-discipline. In fact, freedom and power and success require self-discipline because without it, chaos and complacency move in. Discipline, then, is how we maintain that freedom. It is also how we get in the right headspace to do our work. And he's talking in the chapter about the discipline of setting up routines for the sort of mundane things of our life and why that's important. And he he says uh, at one point something that I thought was interesting. He says, routine done for long enough and done sincerely enough becomes more than routine. It becomes ritual. It becomes sanctified and holy. And he gives a bunch of examples in the book about the the routines that, for instance, elite athletes follow or or different people to set themselves up for excellence in their work and why it's important to them. And again, later in that same section of the book, he says, done enough times, done with sincerity and feeling, routine becomes ritual. The regularity of it, the daily cadence, creates deep and meaningful experience. When the body is busy with the familiar, the mind can relax. The monotony becomes muscle memory. And as I said, he talks in this chapter about how routines and rituals have been used throughout history in religious and military contexts, and even today by elite athletes, for example. But he notes that the purpose of ritual isn't to win the gods over to our side. It's to settle our bodies and our minds down when fortune is our opponent on the other side of the net. It calms us down when we are sort of dealing with chance in the other uh, and chaos, potential chaos in our lives. He says, most people wake up to face the day as an endless barrage of bewildering and overwhelming choices, one right after another. What do I wear? What should I eat? What should I do first? What should I do after that? 
What sort of work should I do? Should I scramble to address this problem or rush to put out that fire? Needless to say, this is exhausting, he tells us. It is a whirlwind of conflicting impulses, incentives, inclinations, and external interruptions. It is no path to stillness and hardly a way to get the best out of yourself. And, you know, I don't know about you, but his description of daily life kind of resonated with me. That is my experience. And it, again, is part of why we struggle with this concept of stillness in our lives to allow ourselves to remain calm when chaos is coming at us from all all angles. Uh, He goes on to say, the psychologist William James spoke about making habits our ally instead of our enemy, that we can build around us a day and a life that is moral and ordered and still, and in so doing, create a kind of bulwark against the chaos of the world and free up the best of ourselves for the work we do. So the point of what he's saying in the book is, that by establishing routines that through habitual and purposeful and sincere uh, repetition of these routines, they become rituals that help us to stay calm and still and create this, as he puts it, a bulwark against the chaos of the world. He goes on to say, when we not only automate and routinize the trivial parts of life, but also make automatic good and virtuous decisions, we free up resources to do important and meaningful exploration. We buy room for peace and stillness and thus make good work and good thoughts accessible and inevitable. And he tells us to make that possible, you must go now and get your house in order, get your day scheduled, limit the interruptions, limit the number of choices you need to make. If you can do this, Passion and disturbance will give you less trouble because it will find itself boxed out. And there's so much more in the book about this, but these are just some of the things that I've been thinking about, the value of creating meaningful routines to to make space so our minds can calm down and bring our best selves to our work, I think is really, and our work, I don't mean, mean just you know, the work you do for money, but whatever work it is that you do, your work around your home, your work with your relationships, whatever those things are, we can bring our best self to it more easily if we create a life that allows us to be still and quiet. I guess I'm oversimplifying what he says, but it's well worth reading. And these are some of the thoughts from that book that have been really um, thought-provoking for me. The second book that I wanted to mention uh, and share some thoughts from is a a book by Brooke McAlary. It's called Slow, Simple Living for a Frantic World. And I mentioned this book, I think, in in episode 375 when uh, I was talking about favorite productive gifts at at the end of the year. Uh, It's just a really good book. And kind of what I'm taking from that book is this concept of slow living, what it means and why it matters. So where Ryan Holiday's book was talking about the concept of stillness, Brooke here in this book talks about this concept of slow living. And she says different people define it differently. So for instance, she cites another author, Aaron, I think it's Lechner or Lochner, as saying that to her, slow living is a duality of caring more and caring less 
that is working out what's worth caring more about and letting go of the things that aren't. And for herself, Brooke in the book says, slow living is a curious mix of being prepared and being prepared to let go, caring more and caring less, saying yes and saying no, being present and walking away, doing the important things and forgetting those that aren't, being grounded and free, heavy and light, organized and flexible. And she says, it's about living in accordance with the important things in life And more specifically, living in accordance with the important things in your life. What I like about this and what it kind of got me thinking about is that this goes to the issue of not basing your life on what other people do. We can get ideas and inspiration from other people, but to make a life that matters to us, we each have to decide for ourselves what's important and then build our own life around that. That's something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, Brooke goes on to say, it's about cultivating self-awareness, letting go of the excess stuff in our homes, learning how to live mindfully, getting in touch with our personal values, and choosing which advice applies to our circumstances, happily releasing the ideas that don't fit our homes, families, jobs, or values. And I love this. So this is kind of in her... uh, in the context of her explanation of what slow living means, I love this this part about getting in touch with our personal values and choosing which advice applies to our circumstances, happily releasing the ideas that don't fit our homes, families, jobs, or values. There's nothing wrong with reading and learning from lots of different sources, from observing what other people do. Uh, from listening to the teachings of other people. But to make a life that matters to you, you have to take all that advice and all that input and evaluate it and decide, does this apply in my circumstance? If not, I'm going to let it go. So I really love that. That was such um, a a good, uh, an inspiration to me to think about that deeply. She shared about a time when she was inspired to do a bit of self-evaluation uh, as to how she was living her life. And she realized, um, she says in the book, too much of my time and energy was spent bogged down in comparisons, frustrations, and stresses of no importance. Not enough of my time and energy was spent in play, presence, bravery, compassion, adventure, acceptance, or love. It was clear to me that the important people, pursuits, and qualities were already present in my life, but they simply weren't getting the attention they deserved. So then and there, I decided to start living life with those important things at the center, making room every day for who and what matters most, because as that wise fellow Will Durant has already told us, we are what we repeatedly do. And that again, was a real kind of, I don't want to use the term wake-up call for me, but it really spoke to me about the fact that everything that matters to me is already present in my life, but are they getting the attention they deserve? Are they the center of my life or are they on the periphery while I'm paying way too much time and attention to things that don't matter nearly as much? 
And so, again, that was really something that provoked a lot of thought in me. Another thing that really I, I got a lot of value out of from this book was a reminder that while it's important to seek out inspiration and idea sources, uh, to to read books, listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, seek out teachings, you know, attend conferences or whatever, that alone will not get us the results we want. At some point, we have to actually do the work. And she says in the book, what reading a book or listening to a podcast didn't do for me, however, was the work. It was very easy to convince myself that hours spent reading Zen habits or immersed in whatever self-help book I'd bought as the only solution to my problems I will ever need was productive time. She says, don't get me wrong, inspiration is a wonderful tool to light a fire under us. But if all we do is sit there and let it burn our pants, then it's not all that helpful, is it? You've yet to make any changes, and now you need new pants. And I, I, I liked that kind of image that, you know, we get all fired up from something we're reading or listening to, but if we don't do anything with it, you know, we, we haven't really achieved any solutions. She goes on to say, people have been digging deep into what it means to live a contented life for many centuries. Ancient philosophers Socrates and Plato ruminated on the unexamined life, while Rumi gave deep insights into the human condition that are somehow as relevant now as when they were written more than 700 years ago. Since then, there have been countless others who have riffed on these same ideas and tried to apply them to modern life. So access to these ideas wasn't the issue for me, she says. I had access to all the information on living a good life I could handle, more than I could handle, actually. If anything, the amount of information was overwhelming and confusing because it was contradictory or simply didn't resonate with me at the time. And here, here's something that, you know, again, really kind of convicted me. She says, the perfect solution wasn't lurking in the pages of a book, just waiting for me to unearth it, dust it off, and see how it fits snugly into the ragged holes of my life. No one was going to deliver a magic solution and help me live better. You know, there you have it. She summarizes all this with the encouragement to us all to, as she says, do the work of uncovering your why. Do the work of establishing your own personal philosophy and set of values. Do the work of naming the highest most eulogy-worthy priorities of your life. Then do the work of putting them at the center of your life every day. And, you know, that's a challenge, I think, to all of us, to do that work. Yes, gather the information, the ideas, the inspiration, but we've got to do the work of applying it to our own life and then taking action on it. And none of this is easy, but this really is the secret, if there is one, of making a life that matters. And uh, again, I recommend this book because there's so much more good stuff in it. And finally, the third book that I've read recently that has been really provoking a lot of thought on in me is Chris Bailey's book, Hyperfocus, How to Manage Your Attention in a World of Distraction. And I mentioned this book in episode 383 when we were talking about making the most of time off. It's there's a lot of good stuff in the book, uh, but here the concept that I took away from it is this concept of hyper focus, 
what it is and why it matters. And in the book, Chris says, the concept of hyper-focus can be summed up in a single tranquil sentence. Keep one important, complex object of attention in your awareness as you work. That's what hyper-focus is. So, you know, backing up again, so from, from Ryan Holiday's book, Stillness is the Key, I'm taking away this concept of stillness and what it is and why it matters. From Brooke McCallery's book, Slow, Simple Living for a Frantic World, I took the concept of slow living, what it is and why it matters. And from Chris Bailey's book, Hyperfocus, How to Manage Your Attention in a World of Distraction, I'm taking this concept of hyperfocus, what it is and why it matters. He talks in the book about how to enter hyperfocus mode. And this is this mode where you have one important complex object of attention in your awareness as you're working in whatever field or area of your life you're working. And he says to hyperfocus, you must one, choose a productive or meaningful object of attention. So it's not just anything, but something that's a meaningful object of your attention. Number two, eliminate as many external and internal distractions as you can. Number three, focus on that chosen object of attention. And number four, continually draw your focus back to that one object of attention. So that's kind of the process, and he expands on all of that. Setting an attention for what we plan to focus on, he says, is the most important step. The more productive and meaningful the task, the more productive and meaningful your actions become. And he gives examples of the kinds of tasks at work or at home that we can set our intention to focus on, and he discusses why it's important that we do so. So as an example, in the home context, he notes this, we experience the benefits of hyper-focus mode by setting such simple intentions as being present in a conversation with our partner or fully enjoying a meal with our family. We learn more, remember more, and process our actions more deeply, and our lives become more meaningful as a result. This first step to reaching hyper-focus mode is essential. Intention absolutely has to precede attention. So the, the key here is being intentional about what we're going to focus on, not just randomly reacting to things that are happening around us, but setting an intention before we give it our attention. He then talks about dealing with distractions, saying there's a simple reason we fall victim to distraction. In the moment, distractions are more attractive objects of attention than what we really ought to be doing. And I kind of smiled when I read that. I thought, yeah, that's obvious. It's simple, but it's so important to consciously think about when we find ourselves distracted. And he says, distractions are infinitely easier to deal with in advance because by the time they appear, it's often already too late to defend our intention against them. So, you know, we intentionally choose what we're going to focus our attention on. We eliminate ahead of time as many external and internal distractions as we can. And then we focus on that chosen object of attention. And his fourth element there is continually, as he says, drawing our attention back to the original object of attention when our mind wanders. And our minds wander. You know, he notes in the book, 
Research shows that our mind wanders for 47% of the day. In other words, he says, if we're awake for 18 hours, we're engaged in what we're doing for just eight of them. It's normal for our mind to wander, he tells us, but the key is to center it so we can spend time and attention on what's actually in front of us. He mentions that it takes, according to various studies, an average of 22 minutes to resume working on a task after we're distracted or interrupted. And he says, we fare even worse when we interrupt or distract ourselves. In these cases, it takes 29 minutes to return to working on the original task. So I just thought, you know, we get distracted, but a key to reaching this hyper-focus mode is recognizing what potential distractions are either in our own minds or around us and dealing with those ahead of time. And then uh, I wanted to share uh, a couple of things that he said about this subject of intention and attention uh, that I thought were really, you know, there's something I've been thinking about ever since I read this. Uh, First of all, he says, attention without intention is wasted energy. Intention should always precede attention. In fact, the two ideas pair perfectly. Intention setting allows us to decide how we should spend our time. Focusing our attention on that task gets it done efficiently. The best way to become more productive is to choose what you want to accomplish before you begin working. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of took away from what he talked about here is this um, concept of setting in intentions for the day rather than calling them goals. But what what are my intentions for this day? And he's very, um, he talks about what he calls the rule of three with respect to setting intentions for the day. And here's what he says about that. At the start of each day, choose the three things you want to have accomplished by day's end. While a to-do list is useful to capture the minutia of the day, these three intention slots should be reserved for your most important daily tasks. By forcing yourself to pick just three main intentions at the start of each day, you accomplish several things. You choose what's important, but also what's not important. The constraints of this rule push you to figure out what actually matters. And I thought this was really good, and it's something that I'm trying to put into practice more intentionally uh, in my days, because what what it really comes down to is that a life that matters is made up of days, of hours, of minutes that matter. And when we intentionally identify what matters for a given day or hour or moment, we're setting ourselves up to make a life that matters. So those are three books that I have read very recently. And I don't know, maybe it's because as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that I have fewer years ahead of me than I have behind me. But time, both big picture and the small moments, is becoming more and more precious to me. More than ever, I feel like if I want to live a life that matters today, one that I won't have regrets at the end of it, Uh, requires the sorts of things that these writers have been talking about. And I've really been trying to sort of synthesize all this for my own mind and my own life. But to live a life that matters so that when I reach the end of my life, I won't have regrets, 
requires things like mindfulness, purposeful presence in each moment, cherishing people more than things, and clearing out everything, both external and internal, that crowds out the people who matter most to me. It requires living with intention and paying attention. And it requires, in order to do all those things, that I establish meaningful routines that will help me calm my body, calm my mind amidst the chaos of daily life so I can bring the best of myself to my work and to my relationships. And I will confess I am not good at these things. They don't come naturally to me. But among other things, by reading books like these and and thinking deeply about the ideas that they share and evaluating which of their advice and ideas makes sense in the context of my life, in doing all of that, I am working on educating myself on the why and the how of establishing habits and creating routines and, and disciplines for myself that help me hopefully improve a little bit each day. And I'm hopeful that these ideas will have some meaning for you. Uh, again, I recommend these books. I'll put links in the show notes in case you want to check them out. But I'd love to know what you think. What are you reading these days that's inspiring you to think in new ways about productivity and making a life that matters? I would love it if you would share that with me and and with the larger Productive Woman community. You can do that by um, posting a question or th- your thoughts or, or you know, an a suggestion of a book we should check out in the comments section of the show notes for this episode, which you will find at theproductivewoman.com slash 386, or post a comment or question on the Productive Woman Facebook page. Of course, if you're a member of the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, you can certainly post something there and we can continue that conversation and maybe share with each other other books or resources that have been helpful uh, to you in your journey to, to making a life that matters. As always, if you prefer to share your thoughts on this with me privately, you can email your questions, comments, or suggestions to me at feedback at theproductivewoman.com. I'd love to hear from you. Don't forget that uh, Calm is offering that exclusive offer of 40% off their Calm premium subscription. Just go to calm.com slash tpw. That's calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash TPW for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. And thank you so much to Calm for supporting the Productive Woman podcast. And that is it for this episode of The Productive Woman. Thank you for spending this time with me. I I hope you enjoyed it or, or found some value in it. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember... Extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter.